Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 13? And let me speak to anybody watching through the live stream. If you're new with us, welcome. I know everybody in the room here, but there's a lot of folks watching online. And if you're new with us, welcome. And just to let you know, we are working our way through the Gospel of John here at Calvary on Sunday mornings. Now, as we come to John 13, as we said last time, we are roughly 15 hours from the cross, but more specifically, chapters 13 through 17 cover a six-hour period, roughly from 6 p.m. to midnight. Now, this was such an important six-hour period of time that John spends one quarter of his entire gospel recording it. It begins in the upper room, where Jesus and his disciples are celebrating the Feast of Passover, and where he will be giving them one last teaching before his crucifixion. In John 13 through 17, we have, in essence, our Lord's farewell message to his disciples, where he endeavors to comfort their hearts in the present, but also to prepare their hearts for the future. In his final exhortation to his disciples before his crucifixion, the Lord Jesus will be speaking to them and demonstrating for them what true greatness in the eyes of God is all about and how it is manifested in the lives of his people. Very important section, all right? I have divided chapter 13 using this outline. You can come up with your own, but Jesus demonstrates true humility. Jesus identifies his betrayer, Jesus unveils a new commandment, and then Jesus prepares Peter for failure. So we started looking at the first one last week, we'll finish it today, but Jesus demonstrates true humility. Now that runs from verse 1 through verse 11, uh, 12, maybe somewhere around there. Let's pick it up, let's look at verse 1. Now, before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end, and supper being ended. Actually, the correct translation seems to be uh, during supper, or as supper was in progress, the devil having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Now let me stop there. We brought in last week Luke 22 verses 1 to 6 where the devil entered into Judas. And let me say this to you. The devil cannot enter into a person and possess them if they don't open that door. I'm not saying they have to be an active devil worshiper. I'm just saying though that they, they have to be involved in some things that are at very least against what God has said uh, opening himself up to a plan that was so wicked that the devil was able to enter into Judas, take control. And the idea is that after that happened, Judas went to the chief priests and scribes and he um, worked out a deal with them, how that he could uh, and would betray Christ to them at a given time, an opportune time when there was no people around and uh, they would pay him. To betray Christ. Uh, we know later on it was for 30 pieces of silver. 
So that's what's going on. By this time, the devil had already entered into Judas Iscariot. Verse 3, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper. And, and the supper it was just beginning. I don't even think they started eating, but after the opening prayers and things, supper was about ready to begin, is the way I read it. And Jesus, verse 4, rose from supper and laid aside his garments, took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Now, as we said last week, what led Jesus to stop in the middle of the Passover Seder with his disciples and start washing their feet was what Luke tells us in chapter 22, verse 24, that his disciples began to argue amongst themselves who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom, the kingdom that they believed Jesus was about to establish. Now, this has been a running argument between the disciples throughout the Lord's earthly ministry. We see it come to surface at different places in his ministry, not the least of which is Matthew 20, when, Peter, when James and John actually asked their mother, we all know Jewish mothers' love for their boys is legendary. They actually asked their mother, Mama, would you ask for us? I guess even Sons of Thunder could be Mama's boys, right? So she comes to Jesus and bows, and he knew she wanted something. What do you want? Well, something just small that you would grant my two boys to sit one on your right hand, one on your left in the kingdom. Jesus said, what a minute, you don't have any idea what you're asking. It's not even mine to give, it's the Father's. And then he turned to his disciples in Matthew 20, starting with verse 25, and it says, Jesus called them to himself and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. Look, the world counts greatness as to how many people you are over in God's kingdom. It's how many people you are under as a servant to, right? Verse 26, again, uh, but whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And so once again, this argument erupted in the upper room while they were eating the Passover meal together. Who was going to be the greatest? If that wasn't enough, Luke tells us that they began to argue about who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom right after Jesus had revealed to them that one of them would betray him. I mean, here we are less than 15 hours from the cross, the events of the next day were already weighing very heavy on our Lord's heart. And all these men were thinking about was themselves who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom, have the most honor, the most influence, the most prestige, and so on. Earlier, Jesus had taught them the principle of greatness in God's kingdom through his words. We just read Matthew 20, 25 to 28. Now he demonstrates for them the principle of greatness, listen, by his example in John 13. Guys, this is where the principle of greatness in God's kingdom 
intersects with true humility and servanthood. Now, we've re- let me just review a little bit from last week. Back in the first century A.D., most people in the world traveled by foot. And almost, almost all the roads and walkways were dirt, unless it had rained, and then they would be mud. And since open-toe sandals were really, the, were really the only form of casual footwear available to them, it meant that when you traveled anywhere, well, obviously your feet would get extremely dirty. And so it was customary that every Jewish home had a picture, pitcher of water, a basin, and a towel near the door for the washing of feet when someone entered their home. If the family was well-to-do, when a person entered their home, one of their servants would immediately come and wash their guests' feet as a courtesy and an act of hospitality, especially if you're going to be reclining at the table with them and sharing a meal. We'll talk about that more in just a moment. But uh, it was just common courtesy, not only a custom, but common courtesy, a sign of hospitality, that if you were a well-to-do family, you had servants that one of them would come immediately to wash your guests' feet upon them entering into your home. If you were too poor to have a servant, uh, well, it was the host's responsibility to wash his guests' feet. However, because it was such a lowly task, uh, often it fell to the wives. (laughs) In fact, the wives typically washed their husbands' feet, and the kids, the children, would wash their parents' feet. But most of the time, most of the time, as people entered the home, Jewish home, pitcher of water, basin, towel, guests would just simply wash their own feet. And that was because washing another's feet in that culture was considered to be the lowliest and most menial task a person could do, often reserved for the lowliest of the servants if a, home, a household had servants. Uh, it was a very degrading thing. Uh, it was a very humiliating thing to wash somebody else's feet. It was a cultural thing. That was their mindset, right? And uh, so I just wanted you to know that so you understand the cultural background. Now, when the disciples entered the upper room to eat the Passover meal that night, uh, there was no servant to wash anyone's feet. There were no wives or kids, okay, who, who could have washed their feet. Uh, the proper thing would have been for one of the disciples to have wa- offered to wash the other disciples' feet. Now, Jesus had been t- teaching them about servanthood for three and a half years, okay? And it would have been proper for one of these guys to say, look, I'll do it. Uh, our Lord's been teaching us about humbling ourselves. I want to do it. Or they could have taken turns washing each other's feet. That would have been the proper thing to do. Uh, but not likely if a group of guys are arguing about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. Great people didn't wash feet. Uh, you know, only the lowliest of the lowly washed feet. These guys thought themselves great, and they were arguing who was going to be the greatest. There was not a humble guy in the group at this point, okay? So Jesus is quietly listening to this, and I'm sure the room was kind of getting loud. No, I'm going to be the greatest. Oh, you're nobody. I'm going to be the greatest. You know, they're probably getting a little loud. Jesus just uh, reclining there, watching the whole thing. And at one point, as they're arguing among themselves who was going to be the greatest, he quietly stands up, and he takes off his outer robe and tunic, 
tied a towel around his waist like an apron. Uh, this was how the servants would have been dressed who washed the guest's feet. Walked over, picked up the pitcher of water, poured some in a basin, knelt down and began to wash the disciples' feet. Well, as we said last week, I can imagine that that room grew quickly still. And the faces of those disciples must have become very flushed with embarrassment. I mean, every man in that room believed Jesus was a king. They all believed he was the king of Israel. Kings don't wash feet. Servants wash feet. And yet these men thought they were great. If they weren't going to do it, Jesus would do it. And so he began to wash their feet. And I believe that the room grew quickly still. The disciples' faces became flushed with embarrassment. And I believe that some of them may have even begun to weep as they were overcome with sorrow and conviction about what was taking place. Well, verse 6. Then he, Jesus, came to Simon Peter. And Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? Peter's horrified. Jesus answered and said to him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but you will know after this. Jesus wants Peter to know that washing the disciples' feet, first of all, had a practical application. Their feet were dirty and they were about to have a meal. And they didn't sit at tables. I'm sorry, Da Vinci. They didn't sit at tables like we do to eat. They had a large, uh, uh, often a uh, square block of wood on the floor. Sometimes it was a U-shaped table, but it was always on the floor. And they reclined on one side, leaning on pillows at about a 45-degree angle. If you had enough guys around the table, it meant at one point somebody's feet were kind of near your head. You didn't want somebody's dirty feet looking at you when you were trying to eat, right? That was the context. Somebody had to wash each other's feet. If they weren't going to do it, Jesus used it as another opportunity to teach about servanthood and greatness in the kingdom of God. So there was definitely a practical application, but there was also a spiritual significance to this. He was going to use it to teach them a very important spiritual lesson. Something that Jesus said Peter and the other disciples didn't understand at the moment. Why he was doing this. They would though someday. In fact, it was only after Jesus died, rose again, and ascended back to the Father that the disciples would finally understand, really understand, why Jesus came to the earth. And it wasn't to reign, it was to serve and ultimately to die. Again, Matthew 20, 28, Jesus said the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. However, there was another spiritual principle that Jesus wanted to communicate to his disciples. I just alluded to it. It wasn't just the practical application. They had dirty feet. Those feet needed to be washed in preparation to eat a meal. There was another spiritual principle that Jesus wanted to communicate to his disciples through his action that night, a principle that Jesus, excuse me, that Peter actually introduced, unbeknownst to him, right? Uh, Peter kind of introduced this principle, gave Jesus the open door, all right, to uh, talk 
about this very important principle um, which came about through Jesus washing the disciples' feet. When he came to Peter, Peter was horrified that his Savior and King wanted to wash his feet. Again, kings don't wash feet. Servants do. And here he is, the King of Kings, washing their feet. Peter's horrified. And he blurts out in verse 8, You shall never wash my feet. Look, Peter did not understand what his Lord was doing. But instead of waiting for an explanation, you know, Peter, impulsive Peter, he basically tried to tell the Lord what not to do. Okay? Um, we all love Peter. He had a good heart. But he was impulsive. He was self-willed. And there were times when he just blurted things out. Here's one of them. Another, I think, of Acts 10, right? When he was waiting for lunch to be prepared on the rooftop, he fell into a trance. I saw a sheet come down from heaven, open at the four corners, held, open up all kinds of animals inside, clean and unclean. The Lord said, Peter, rise, kill, and eat. And what did Peter say? Not so, Lord. I've never eaten anything unclean from my youth. I'm a good kosher boy. I would never eat anything unclean. And the Lord was say, said to him, what I have cleansed, you shall not call unclean. The dietary laws were over now. And especially the Gentiles were no longer unclean and to be, and to be separated from. Now Jesus was going to bring Jew and Gentile together in one new man, the body of Christ, the church. Um, was now born, okay? But Peter's horrified. And when he said, you shall never wash my feet, in the Greek there is a double negative, a strong double negative in Peter's statement. Greek scholar Kenneth Weiss translated this, trying to capture now what Peter actually said in the Greek. He said, and I quote, you shall by no means wash my feet. No, never, is the idea. So he was pretty adamant. Okay. But upon hearing this, hearing this, Jesus just said to Peter, and I imagine with a very calm, loving tone, in verse 8, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. The word translated part is the Greek word meros, and it carries the idea of participation having a share in someone or something. Let me paraphrase. Jesus said, Peter, if I don't wash your feet, you can't have fellowship with me. Well, Peter said in verse 9, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Translation, Lord, if that's the case, I'll take a bath. At this point, Jesus uses the illustration of foot washing and taking a full bath to teach a very important spiritual principle that, listen, all of us need to understand. Very important, okay? Let's read verse 10. Jesus said to him, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. You are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him. Therefore he said, you are not all clean. The word translated wash, in fact, that word appears in verses 5, 6, 8, 
10 and also in verses 12 and 14, which we did not read. We'll read those next time. But the word wash appears in verses 5, 6, 8, 10, 12, and 14. It's the Greek word nipto, nipto. And it means to wash a part of a body. But the word translated bathed in verse 10 is luo and means to bathe all over. Now in that culture, when a person took a bath, usually in the morning, and was cleansed completely, full bath, cleansed completely, they called it luo, luo. But then as they walked on dirt paths with open sandals throughout the day, as we said, their feet would become dirty, very dirty oftentimes, and would, they would need to be washed then as they entered someone's home to eat and fellowship with them. This washing of their feet was referred to as nipto, nipto, a partial cleansing, okay? One author said, when a sinner trusts the Savior, he is bathed all over. In other words, made completely clean through the blood of Christ. And his sins are washed away and are forgiven. This is the full bath of salvation. Turn to Revelation 1. As John the Apostle is introducing Jesus, in verse 5, he says that Jesus Christ is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth. Listen. To him who loved us and washed us. That is the Greek word luo. Who washed us from our sins in his own blood. And he goes on. You can read the whole context on your own. So John is telling us, and of course he's not the only one, John is telling us that when we receive Christ as our Lord and Savior, the blood of Christ at that moment bathed us, washed us fully of our sins. All our sins were cleansed away, right? We were now washed clean by the blood of Christ, and that allowed us to have fellowship with Jesus. The idea is salvation is in view there, right? However, once you're saved as a believer now, you and I, we walk through this filthy, defiled world throughout the day, don't we? Depending on your job, I don't know what you do for a living, but uh, some jobs uh, are dirtier than others, so to speak. You brush elbows with a lot of people who are uh, very defiled, and they defile those they come in contact with through their dirty jokes and coarse language and just how they live, okay? As you... Rub shoulders with them, you know, and, and all. What happens is some of the defilement that is on them uh, rubs off on us. Um, it's easy, listen, it's easy for uh, our spiritual feet, in other words, our walk with Jesus to become dirty and defiled as we walk through this world, as we're saved now, as we walk through this world. Uh, we just come in contact with a lot of defilement. The world is a defiled place, right? And so as we walk through this defiled world, our spiritual feet, quote-unquote, our walk with Jesus becomes dirty and defiled. Now, when that happens, 
he or she doesn't need to be fully bathed again. In other words, a Christian doesn't need to be saved all over again. They've already been washed in the blood of Christ. They're already saved, completely clean is the idea. They simply need to have their feet, quote-unquote, washed. In other words, they simply need to confess those sins to the Lord, confess that defilement, whatever they picked up through the day. Maybe they engaged in some dirty joke-telling because that's what the office was doing. That's what people in the office... You don't want to seem like, a, like somebody that was uh, you know, not part of the team or not one of the gang. So some nice Christians will fall into it. Uh, or they get involved in gossip or some of the old coarse language comes out. And they immediately they feel this conviction of the Holy Spirit. So they go home and they want to make it right. They, they get before the Lord and uh, they confess this, right? They confess these things. And uh, what happens is the defilement is cleansed away and their fellowship or their walk with the Lord is restored. Of course, we all know what John said, 1 John 1 verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. John is talking about to Christians now who are saved. They've already been completely cleansed by the blood of Christ, but as they walk through this world, they pick up some of the defilement. And so they need to confess those sins and, uh, and know that God has promised them he will wash them. This is a spiritual foot washing that's in view in 1 John 1, 9. Look, the Jewish people, and we talked about this last time, to the Jewish people, the feet were the dirtiest part of the body because that was the part of the body that came in contact with the world. And that's why Jesus uses the idea uh, of uh, dirty feet as an illustration of a defiled walk from having contact with the world. And guys, that's why it's so important to keep our walk clean to keep our walk clean. Because if we are defiled by the world, we can't walk properly with the Lord. We can't have communion with Him. And that's the idea, all right? In that regard, then, we must constantly confess our sins, repent, and wash daily in the water of the Word. Ephesians 5.26, Paul talked about washing uh, in the water of the Word. What does that mean? Well, you're out in the world all day and your mind is your, through your eyes and your ears. You're picking up junk, dirt, dirty language, dirty jokes. You come home and after maybe you have a little something to eat, you get the word out. And you begin to feed on the word. What that does is it cleanses away those dirty words and images. and gets you to focus on God again, right? On God's word, which is pure and lovely and so on. And as we begin to fill our mind with God's word, it has a way of washing out the filth washing out the dirt, right, that we have picked up throughout the day. Very important. And then, as we just said in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, God says, I am faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you. So confession is involved as well, right? But look, and I want to, I'm stressing this because Jesus stresses it. He uses a practical illustration to teach a very important spiritual lesson. Don't miss it, okay? Don't miss it. When God bathes us all over in salvation, when God bathes us, the moment we receive Christ as our Savior, at that moment He bathes us with the blood of Christ, we're completely clean. That brings about our, listen, union with Christ. We are now connected to Jesus. We are one with Him, right? Our union with Christ. In other words, we are born again. And listen to me, this is very important. 
That union with Jesus is a relationship that will never change. I am a firm believer that if you are really saved, you are saved forever. I don't believe a Christian can lose their salvation. But are you really saved? Because there are people that come to church, we're going to talk about them in a moment, come to church for a while, look good, and then walk away. They're never seen again in church. People say, well, they lost their salvation. I don't think they ever had it. That's my conviction, okay? That's my conviction. And I believe this is borne out, not just here in John 13, many other places, but here, we're here. Let's look at it for a second. When God bathes us in the blood of Christ at the moment of salvation, we're completely clean. He tells us that he bathes us in verse 10, but that Greek word luo is in the present tense. Excuse me, in the perfect tense in the Greek. What does that mean? The perfect tense denotes denote something, an action that happened in the past, but the results of which are continual into the present. And when we're talking about salvation, on into eternity. So what that means is if you had have received Jesus Christ at some time in the past, I don't care if it was six months ago or you know six years ago, if you've received Jesus Christ into your heart as your Lord and Savior, you were saved. And the blood of Christ, God's Son, continues to wash you clean. Again, 1 John 1, 9. What a great verse on this subject, right? The blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, continually uh, uh, continually cleanses us from all sin. Once you get saved, that was a moment in time in the past. But now the Spirit of God is inside of you. The blood of Christ continues to cleanse you. You can't lose your salvation because all your sins have been washed away. Yes, but I didn't. What about the ones I had didn't commit yet? That's what we're talking about. They're all under the blood of Christ. And, and so just understand that. Now, as Jesus said, look, if you received me in the past, my blood continually cleanses you in the, in the present and into the future. You'll never lose your salvation. You've passed from death to life. You belong to me now, is the idea, right? That's union with Christ. That's salvation. But once we get saved, that's when our daily walk begins. And now we're talking about daily communion. Your union with Christ, your salvation can be broken. That relationship is sure. But your practical communion with Jesus can be broken if you sin uh, or walk away for whatever reason back into the world for a time. That communion is broken. And will not be restored until, again, 1 John 1, 9, you confess the, those sins, repent, and allow God to cleanse you and then reconnect you where the flow of the Spirit is now, again, flowing through your life. You're still saved if you're a backslidden Christian. But once you're connected to Christ in fellowship, then the Spirit of God begins to flow again. The power of God, the fruit of the Spirit begins to grow, Right? And what is the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, and all the others, right? Uh, some of us Christians say, Pastor, I, I feel so, I, I have no joy. I have no love. I have no peace. Uh, how's your walk doing? Well, I guess it's okay. Are you going to church? No, no, I haven't been to church in a while. Are you reading the Word every day? Oh, no, I haven't done that. Do you have any contact with the Lord? Are you praying? Well, no, I've kind of gotten away from that. 
Fellowship with believers? No, I haven't been around. Well, that's why you're feeling the way you're feeling. Your walk has dried up. I'm not saying you're lost, but your walk has dried up because you have severed yourself from Jesus who is the source. He told John 15, once a person is connected to him, the fruit of the Spirit grows normally. It does naturally almost, right? But you have to be in, in fellowship with him. What, what am I saying? Okay, well, union is permanent. Communion depends on us keeping ourselves, as James put it, chapter 127, uh, depends on us keeping ourselves uh, unspotted from the world, right? That's defilement. Defilement. Uh, we continue to walk with Jesus in communion if we stay away from the junk, the garbage, the defilement of the world. Sometimes we can't help it. We're at work and somebody tells a dirty joke or something. So you, you, you just right there, you confess, Lord, I don't want that on my mind. You confess that, and you go home and just get into the Word. It's over. It's over. Some people, though, they get involved with sin, and it's like maybe sometimes years they walk away, right? And that's not what God wants for us. So I'm saying then the, the Christian life consists of one bath, but many foot washings pretty much daily, okay? Now here in John 13, Jesus is using this practical Thing, this practice that they were all familiar with to teach them about spiritual cleansing. That was the whole point. He took practical bathing, foot washing. They all knew it. Very, very, you know, very familiar with it. But he used it to teach them about spiritual cleansing through the blood that Jesus was going to shed at about this time in roughly 12 hours. The evening has been progressing. Now, when Peter discovered that to refuse the Lord from washing his feet, he would lose the Lord's fellowship. And I don't think Peter fully understood what, what Jesus was. I'm not saying Peter really understood, okay? I don't think he understood the spiritual significance uh, that Jesus was communicating to these guys. We understand it because we have the Spirit now. They, at this point, they didn't have the Spirit in them, okay? All Peter heard was, if Peter, if I, you don't let me wash your feet, you can't have fellowship with me. When Peter heard that, uh, he said, uh, well, let's back up to verse 10. Um, well, let me just say this because I'm getting ahead of myself. When Peter heard Jesus say, Peter, if you don't let me wash your feet, you can't have fellowship with me. What did Peter say? Well, then I'll take a bath, okay? Because, Lord, I want fellowship with you, whatever it takes. That, that's, I think, what was Peter was talking about. Lord, then give me a bath. Now, verse 10, Jesus said to him, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, right? But is completely clean. And you are clean. Speaking to the whole group of men in that room. But not all of you. For he knew who would betray him. Therefore, he said, you are not all clean. You are clean, but not all of you means that the disciples, the eleven, had received the bath of regeneration. They were saved. And they were all clean, except for one. Except for one. All those men were washed of their sins. They were saved. They were Christians, right? All but one. They were all children of God, except for Judas. 
except for Judas. Judas was never saved. He was an imposter. Sometimes people say, well, pastor, how do you know that? I think he was just backslidden. No, Judas was not just backslidden. Judas was never saved. How do I know that? Well, first of all, I know it from John 6, verses 64 to 71. Jesus made it abundantly clear. And he just said it right here, right? He called Judas the son of perdition. Perdition means destruction or hell. Not a child of God, a child of the devil, okay? Um, Jesus said uh, when Judas, I can't remember if it was after he died or before Jesus is prophesying, but he said he's going to his own place. The Greek idea is his own home, his own environment. He's a son of hell, that's where he's going. Never was a child of God, okay? And yet none of the apostles had the slightest idea that Judas was a phony, uh, was not for real. I mean, you're thinking, you know, a guy like Judas, I mean, people imagine, well, they got, you know, he must have wore a black leather robe or something. Everyone knew this guy, he was so bad. Well, no, they didn't. They had no idea it was Judas. When Jesus said, we'll study this in a couple of weeks, uh, before the night is out, one of you will betray me, they all began to buzz among themselves. Is it me? Is it me? Who is it? Who is it? They didn't all point to Judas and say, I, we knew it was you. No, they didn't know. In other words, Judas looked good. There are people that come to church. Some of them know they're phonies. They're trying to take advantage of Christians because you're good-hearted. They come in here. They know they're not saved. They act like Christians, so loving. They get to know you, have dinner with you. And, and then here comes the thing. Oh, can, can you just loan me a few bucks? You know, I get to get the car fixed. I'll pay you next week, get the car fixed. And, you know, that kind of thing. And you do that because you're good-hearted and they're gone. So a lot of times there are people that know they're not saved. They're, they're, they're just phonies. They know that. But then there are some people who really do think they're saved. Remember what Jesus said, Matthew 7? On the day of judgment, some, many are going to come to me and say, well, Lord, Lord, what do you mean we're not going to heaven? Didn't we cast out demons and, and uh, uh, do mighty works and prophesy? What are, you, what are you talking about? What do you say he's going to say to them? Depart from me. What? I knew you for a while and you backslid. Now you're gone. Now you're out. I never knew you, right? I never knew you. But these folks were convinced that they were genuine Christians on their way to heaven, shocked that Jesus would say to them, you're not, you're not going to get in. You, you, you're, you never were one of my people. One author said, and I quote, it appears that Judas was there when Jesus washed the disciples' feet. That's interesting, which means Jesus washed Judas' feet. What a picture of the Son of God who came down from heaven to serve and to save all mankind, even those who were his enemies, end quote. Well, turn to Jude chapter 1. That's a trick thing because there's only one chapter, so. And Jude verse 5 says something we need to understand along these lines, Okay. Jude said, but I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. 
not everybody who came out of Egypt was a true child of God. You had what was called the mixed multitude come out of Egypt. These were unbelievers who didn't want to stay with the losers, wanted to come out and hang out with the winners. In other words, the, the, the children of Israel, right? But these were not saved individuals. They were the first to murmur and complain in the wilderness, and they died in the wilderness. The point is, not everybody, and, and this goes for the Jews themselves, not every Jew was a true child of God then and even today. I mean, Paul makes it a point to say, you can have the blood of Abraham in your veins and not have the, the faith of Abraham in your heart. Abraham had two sons, Paul said, Ishmael and Isaac. Isaac was the son of promise. He was, a, he was saved. Ishmael was a work of the flesh. They both had Abraham's blood in their veins. Only one, the faith of Abraham in their heart, only one was going to heaven. That is the point, and that's what I want to kind of build on for a minute, all right? It reminds me of people who start coming to church, and uh, they appear to have been delivered from the world, even as these folks were literally delivered from Egypt, the type of the world, right? But they didn't all make it into the promised land was the idea. But there are folks who come into church, and it appears that they have been delivered by, delivered from the world. They claim to be Christians. They'll tell you they walked the aisle of the Billy Graham crusade, prayed the prayer to receive Jesus, filled out the card, and boom, you know, I'm a Christian now. And they can even tell you at times they had some kind of religious or spiritual experience that proves they were, they're Christians now. But eventually, well, they hang out for a while, right? My experience has been sometimes they're the most zealous, the most passionate, the most on fire people in the church for a while. Sometimes days, sometimes weeks, sometimes months. I've even seen this sometimes years. That's rare, but I've seen it. What happens is they come, hang out with you guys because, you know, you love the Lord, you're spirit-filled, your lives have changed. They hang out with you, good company, Good company promotes good habits. Bad company, Romans 15, corrupts good habits. So when they hang out with you guys, they start to change. You guys don't drink, they don't drink. You guys don't watch certain kind of movies on TV and all, they don't watch those movies. They, they want to be like you because, you know, you're their new family. You give them a sense of purpose, a sense of belonging. And they do want to hang out with you, and, and they start to act like you. But it's only for a while. Turn to 2 Peter 2. While you're doing that, let me just say again, they come to church, they start hanging out with you, they start changing. But eventually they go back to, listen, the old life, which for them isn't old, it's the only life they've ever known. Their normal, listen, fallen life. They were never redeemed. They were never born again. They don't go back to the old life. They go back to the only life they've ever known. In 2 Peter 2, starting with verse 20, Peter talks about these people. He said, For if after they escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ... And they are again entangled in them, in them and overcome. 
the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness uh, than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. And and you read that and go, well, pastor, I mean, it's like, how can you say these, these people were not saved? It says that they escaped the pollutions of the world. They, uh, they had the knowledge of Jesus Christ, you know, uh, in their in their hearts or minds, I don't know where they had it, but uh, how can you say they weren't saved and just are backslidden? Because of what Peter goes on to say, verse twenty-two. But it has happened to them; they've gone back to the world. It has happened to them according to the true proverb: a dog returns to its own vomit, and a sow pig, having washed to her wallowing in the mire. Folks, why does a dog eat its own vomit? Right? Why does a dog eat its own vomit? Because that's the nature of a dog. That's what dogs do. When a dog eats its own vomit, it's just acting true to its nature. Right? I like the second one even better. And to a pig... After having been washed, so you're on a farm, you own a farm, you got pigs, they like to hang out in the mud pit or, you know, the pig, the, the, the mud hole. But one of them's kind of cute, the kids want to make it a pet. You go down to the mud hole, you pull it out of there, you take it, wash it, you know, maybe perfume it a little, I don't know what you do with it. Bring it in the house and now it's a pet. And in those days, they all slept on the floor as a family. The, the pet pig sleeps on the floor with you, part of the family, Right. What happens the first time you leave the door open now? It goes out the door back into the mud hole. Why? Because it has the nature of a pig. Peter says, why does a person, after having come to church and been cleansed up a little bit, why do they go back into the world never to return again to church? Because that's their nature. They were never redeemed. They don't have a new nature like we do. Why don't we want to go from church and go out and drink and party and sleep around like we used to do. Why do we like to do that anymore? Because it's not our nature anymore. Peter tells us that when we accepted Christ, we became partakers of God's nature. The Spirit moved in and began to work through us the nature and the attributes of God, the love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. All the fruits of the Spirit are really the attributes of God. And the world can't make those or fake those because they come from God. And if God's not in your heart, then you, you're not going to see the fruit of the Spirit growing from your life, is the idea. So Peter says, if you want to know if somebody is really saved or not, it takes time. When, when somebody comes up here to pray to receive Christ, I pray with them. Am I really overexcited with joy? No. I say, well, why not? I want to see some fruit first. I'll get real happy when I start seeing some fruit. What fruit are you looking for? I don't know. Changed life? Uh, do they like to hang out with Christians now? Uh, do they like to read the Word? Do they like to worship God? Do they like to go telling people about Jesus? That's a pretty good indication something's going on, right? Do they want to party some more? No, they, they don't want to do that anymore. Drink, smoke, dope? No. They don't want to do any of that. Well, then, that, you know, that to me is some fruit. It tells me that, you know, a change is taking place. They're not perfect. None of us are. But it seems like they're growing now. Seems like something is happening. The Holy Spirit is inside them, okay? And uh, look, the lesson I'm trying to uh, get at here 
is that not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, is going to make it into the kingdom of heaven. Again, Matthew 7, verses 21 to 23. A person can be deceived into thinking they're saved and not be saved, just like Judas, just like Judas. And this is why we are commanded in Scripture. We'll end with this. This is why we are commanded in Scripture. And I'll just read these to you. Write them down. 2 Peter 1.10, Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. What is Peter saying? Be diligent to examine yourselves to make sure that there is a change going on. Uh, make sure that you, what you want to do is confirm your call and election. You want to confirm you're saved. Paul said the same thing, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 31. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not have to be judged someday. In other words, if I will be honest with myself right now and take good, honest stock of my relationship with Jesus, uh, am I just playing a game? Do I come to church, hear the word, walk out those doors, and really have no intention of living any of it, but I just feel good that I came to church. Paul said, look, if you judge yourself now, am I really saved or am I playing games? If I honestly examine myself and say, I think I'm just playing a game. I don't really see too much. They're talking about transformation and growing and fruit. I don't see any of that. You have time to get on your knees, confess your sins, and really receive Christ. You'll escape the judgment of God coming because Jesus said on the day of judgment, He's going to tell people, I knew you, I didn't know you. I knew you, I didn't know. All of those I didn't know, churchgoers or not, get, depart from me. You don't want to hear that. You want to make sure that you are truly saved. I'll have you turn to one more scripture, we'll close. Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10, starting with verse 37. Where the writer says, For yet a little while, and he who is coming, Jesus, will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith. That's a way of saying believers, true believers, the just. You've been justified by the blood of Christ. The just shall live by faith. Listen. But if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. The writer is saying not everybody who supposedly comes to Christ has really come to Christ. They could come to church, but maybe not come to Christ in their heart. Okay, And he makes the point of saying that God knows who they are. And God says, look, if anyone draws back, comes to the border of salvation but doesn't cross over, and become really saved, they draw back into the world. What they're doing is they're drawing back to perdition. My soul has no pleasure in that. God doesn't care if you get close to salvation. He only cares if you, by faith, enter into salvation, repent, and so on, right? Become a true child of God. If anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But then the writer says, but we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. So he's saying, look, most of us in church, Lord, we do love you. We are saved. God says, I know. I know, right? 
What did Paul say to Timothy? Young pastor, the firm foundation of the Lord stands having this seal. The Lord knows those who belong to him. He knows, right? Unfortunately, some never do enter into salvation. Like the people that came out of Egypt, they die in the wilderness. In other words, they're not saved. They, they don't go all the way to the promised land. They don't, they, they don't really enter into salvation, although they play around the, the, the perimeter, the border, okay? Come to church, hear the word, understand God's truth, but then walk away from it all and never really apply it, never really get saved. Judas was one of these who came to the border of salvation and drew back to perdition to hell. Judas was never saved. Now, look, I'd like to continue in verses 18 to 30, looking at Judas, especially the events of this night. We can learn a lot, okay? But next week, I'd like to focus on verses 12 to 17, because Jesus says something almost in passing that to me is so important, we need to spend at least a week looking at it, okay? And I'm entitling the message next week, The Secret of a Happy Life. Anybody here want to live a happy life? Okay, here it is, okay? And no, I'm not going to be one of those motivational speakers, okay? Uh, No, it's not me. But Jesus gives us the principle, the secret for living a happy life. And we'll look at it next time. Let's pray. Father... We thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you, Lord, for redeeming us, for saving us. And give us grace now to walk in daily communion with you, Lord, as we stay close to you and uh, walk with you every day, keeping our feet clean, our walk sanctified, holy, that we might have fellowship with you. So, Lord, thank you. We ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.